When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. How can we maintain our freedom when living in society with others? What principles inform good governance, where the civic bonds are not too restrictive, but allow different people to live together as equal? How are our rights and duties interwoven in a republic? Can the government take a role in guaranteeing these rights, but also enforcing these duties? Or have we in today's America lost the register that says that we have obligations toward others as much as our own freedoms, and that being part of a republic means being bound together in a common enterprise? When did this happen? Why? How did we lose this perspective? And most importantly, can we return to a sense that rights and responsibilities, freedom and duty, are inextricably interwoven? I spoke with Professor Eko Yanka of the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. He holds degrees from Michigan, Columbia Law School, and Oxford University. And we talked about Aristotle and the Founding Fathers, freedom of speech, and universal health care, the rights we have, the freedoms we enjoy, and how to balance those things out. So welcome to Think About It, a podcast. Today I'm very happy to sit at Cardozo Law School with Professor Eko Yanka, who is a professor of law at Yeshiva's University's Cardozo School of Law. He holds degrees from Columbia, Michigan, and Oxford University, and has been writing a lot about the intersection of political theory and legal theory, or the justifications for the laws that we implement and we adhere to, and what are the underlying reasons. First of all, Echo, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm really happy to be sitting in your office here on a beautiful fall day. My pleasure. It's great to see you again, and thank you for having me. It's, we were on a panel together at Cardozo, organized by Michelle Rosenfeld, about a year and a half ago with Kate Shaw as well, on free speech. And after this, we've had one or two short conversations about how you think about generally what's happening in our culture, about how you approach your profession, teaching. What is the role of expertise? What is the status of the truth? So this is a conversation that's not just directly about free speech on campus, but larger questions in our culture right now that a lot of people are grappling with when someone in a position of authority can dispute known facts. How do we counter that? When a good argument is countered with a very charismatic speaker who may be wrong, how do we negotiate those things? So, so when you approach this in teaching, how do you lay these things out, since your work is both in political theory and in jurisprudence? Yeah. You know, there are a bunch of different ways to think about this. And I think there are some deep motivational questions that hopefully we'll touch on later. But to take your question on, how do I approach this when I teach? 
Your question calls to mind one of the things I tell my students when I first meet them. I tell them, welcome to law school. I know you think you're here to tell me what you think, but I'm not interested in what you think. If I wanted to know what somebody thought, I could just pull somebody off the street and ask them what they think. People don't hire lawyers because they're interested in your musing about the world. They're interested in your having wrestled with the law, brought it into some sort of control, understanding the way precedents affect facts, applying those precedents to their particular facts for an outcome they need. And after all of that, they're interested in what you think. I mean, it's a lie, of course, to pretend that law is like math or, you know, like some sort, you know, the the favorite analogy when people are going on the Supreme Court is that judges are just umpires. They just call balls and strikes. This, of course, is silly. Everybody knows it's silly. You have to have a point of view when you're discussing the law. You have to have, you know, I've been lucky to work with great lawyers, and the best lawyers have a point of view. But it's not to the question of expertise. It's not just leaning back and telling us what you think. It is training that point of view for years and understanding what it took to get to where you are. And then not pretending that you're not infusing your own position into it. And you have to balance those two things out. Students slowly get to understand that. I mean, that is as much as anything, the process that they go through becoming lawyers. So what they learn is not that the law is absolutely neutral or static, but it is shaped and informed by these different processes. One of them is to learn how the law has been written and how it is meant to be applied, how it is effectively applied and correctly applied, so you don't just pick and choose certain things, but you actually have to do a comprehensive overview of what laws have been used in this particular circumstance. And then lastly, what you said to remain mindful that one's personal opinion will possibly still shape this kind of outcome. Well, that's exactly right. Maybe I'll write down exactly the way you put it for next year. Look, you have to be able to keep both thoughts in your mind at the same time. One thing I remind them is that, you know, many of the cases they read are from the Supreme Court. And as bright and talented as our justices are, whatever you else you think of them, they were once law students in your seat, too. They're not special kinds of creatures. And the debates they have on the Supreme Court will very much mirror the debates you have with your colleagues here, whether or not the law is meant to do this or that, whether an originalist interpretation is the best way to safeguard our politics or... Let me ask you one thing about the word you just used, just to clarify for people like me who didn't go to law school, the originalist approach. Oh, sure. What does that mean? Well, there's a large debate about what it means, and there are many different kinds of originalism in constitutional theory. The basic idea, the core idea in originalism, is that the most important way to interpret a legal claim, a constitutional legal claim, is by referencing the original intent of the Constitution. Now, how you interpret that is itself a matter of great controversy. You know, the the most early version of original intent was something like, what did the founders mean? Most people don't think that's quite what originalism means anymore. There are many different variations. Just to give you one, you might think what really mattered was the original public meaning of a phrase. So when you say no cruel, unusual punishment, do you mean what we think of as cruel as original punishment? No, an originalist would say, what was the original public meaning? What did people in a particular time, the moment the Constitution was passed, think that everybody understood or 
when you said this phrase would be communicated. So the the constitutional lawyers need a history class as well. They need to read Gordon Wood. If and you're an originalist, like that, or if you're you know, an originalist, uh, of course there are uh, people who uh, are Ned Gordon Reed to tell us really what the founding what, fathers what did it really mean? thought. Exactly. Now originalism actually comes with a bunch of interesting normative claims. I think, which for me is where the action is. The normative claims, as best as I can put them, I'm not an originalist, so I don't pretend to be the best representative of them. But the normative claim would be something like, it is only by imbuing constitutional claims with their original meaning that we safeguard ourselves politically. Why? Because the claim would go, if we don't have a referent, something that fixes a constitutional meaning, then after all, this provision is just being interpreted by some person, or in the grandest case, nine unelected judges, and they become something like a super legislature. And that surely is a dangerous form of being governed, right? Why would we elect nine people to tell us what our laws mean according to their whim? Now, all this assumes that there is something like an original meaning that is, you know, sufficiently uncontroversial that those nine people are being constrained. And, you know, one thing to worry about is that the people who claim to be originalists seem to often come to conclusions that match their political preferences anyway. So if you think originalism is just masquerading for their political preferences, then it doesn't fulfill its normative promise, which is to constrain. Now, you know, the extent to which whether that's true, the extent to which whether or not they're actually fulfilling their political preferences, you know, perhaps some judge would stand up and say, you don't know how I would actually vote, but I'm not voting here, I'm a judge. As a normative ideal to say the law says something that, let's say we presume had originally been intended and most people today would agree on it to prevent people from taking it in sort of strange directions and saying it right. means this for me, it means that for you. So it's supposed to counter this kind of effort to go in all sorts of directions. It's meant to. And in particular, it's meant to counter the ability of just some small group of elite people to tell us what direction they want to go in, right? Because remember, after all, you know, you might think it's all for the better if they go in a direction that you say we've all evolved. But after all, they might be nine retrograde people who deeply, you know, hold views that none of us hold. And that, you know, would seem worrisome. So that's the normative claim. The normative counter-argument, of course, is why in God's earth, even if we could uh, determine what originalism is, and even if there weren't the very worrying and suspicious connection with a slew of positions that seem, you know, as a lay matter, deeply conservative, even if none of those things were true, you know, some of us just find it puzzling why we ought to be necessarily frozen by the view of, you know, whatever the original public meaning was 200 years ago. I mean... And a good question maybe for me, what I think about, so who is the legal subject? Is it a citizen? Is it a subject? Is it a person? What is personhood? Those are, is this an essential question before the law? Who stands before the law? Kind of Kafka's formulation, he has this little parable, who's before the law? But who stands before the law in 1791 or in the 1780s is uh, who's governed by the law or given rights by the law. That's exactly right. One debate is, well, look, the original public meeting might just be hugely deficient precisely because the voices at the table are entirely different. Now, again, if you're an originalist, you might say, well, look, 
one of the problems is that we've allowed a certain group of people to determine what the original public debate is, and that's a much bigger debate. So there are a small group of interesting liberal, you might say, originalists who say, look, the original public meeting is much more interesting or controversial. Or Again, none of this is my field of expertise, so you'll have to ask them exactly what... But I'm going to go back is. to, but your field of expertise, one of it is to teach law. Yes. So when you teach true. your students, and so first year, second year, third year, lawyers, or in your workshops, or you teach at many, you know, other probably graduate programs, LLM students, etc., don't you have to come up with a way, this is this particular law, this is what it means, and no, you cannot just make up anything you want? Yes. Yeah, I certainly think that's true. And look, to the extent that originalism has as its goal some form of restraint on power... That's certainly a goal that almost anybody can endorse. Uh, I'm not sure originalism gets there. But I do think the more important point, to your point, is to what extent are the laws fixed? And how do we fight for, determine, and motivate the law with our normative purposes, right? So at the end of the day, to be really honest, I just think the most important questions, most important legal questions, don't usually have fixed legal answers. If they did, they wouldn't be in front of the Supreme Court, right? I mean, if it was really as simple as... As applying some rules. As applying some rules. It's not a matter of just applying rules and everybody agrees. Exactly. And I'm sympathetic to why everyone thinks it is because, you know, like anybody, I I fall into the same problem. When you deeply believe in something... You can fool yourself into thinking it's self-evident. Um, well, you've, I read one of your essays on virtue, and it was sort of the case study was sort of on whether to legalize prostitution or not. And you said you can have very strongly held beliefs, moral beliefs, that actually make you feel you're absolutely right about certain things. That something like an example would be prostitution is a moral wrong. So you will be hard pressed to come up with laws that legalize it which looks like endorsing this kind of behavior. It may not be intending to endorse it, but it looks like you're yeah. protecting or you're promoting or something like that. So you have written about sort of the tension between a strong moral conviction and whether that shapes our approach to the law, what we think the law should be or could be. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the classic and important claims of liberalism, and it is under attack in some ways by thoughtful people, right? There are ways in which liberalism can't supply all the answers, and in some ways by people who are really quite dangerous. One classic idea in modern liberalism is the separation between the right and the good, right? That the state should not sign up for any particular conception of the good. Put in less highfalutin terms, the idea is something like, whatever you think of as the best life to live, that's not the business of the state to impose. The way I like to put it is, the state is not your priest. Right. As long as that form of life, as John Stuart Mill would put it, doesn't interfere with my form of life. Right. So maybe so you can live any way you want. You can right. homestead out there, have your guns, have your cattle, have your cars. That's or right. Don't have your cars, don't have cattle, don't have guns. And as long as it doesn't interfere with my life, it's okay. Right. You can sell your body or not. You can do drugs or not. You can, and, you know, that's, it's at least one of the core. Right. So, you know, one easy thought is this. It's dangerous to drink and drive. The state should absolutely prohibit that. But whether or not you can do recreational drugs is your business. That's one core form of liberal thought. Now, I'm actually not a liberal like that. My disagreement with liberalism is different than the disagreement that conservatives have. Now I'm using conservatives in the political, not the philosophical sense. But the attack on liberalism in this sense is the question of whether or not the laws really should be more in the service of morality, 
right? Or some people might even be a little bit more modest and say, at least in the service of a public zeitgeist or a public form of life, right? That is to say, if we're a deeply religious country that abhors commodization of the body, then we would be justified in prohibiting prostitution just as such. And if we're a deeply liberal country that abhors interference, then we'd be justified in... What kind of country are we as America? Yeah, Aren't I... we a deeply moral country, deeply committed to certain values? And I do know that, as far as I know, the president takes his oath on putting his place in his hand on the Bible. Actually, the president is not required to. Has it's any president not tradition. put it on? Not it? that I know of. So we I, don't I know of any president. Back. We have to look back. And I would see have to look back. There right. are state officials. There are important state so, officials so and some country, governors who as have a, not. As a state, shouldn't our government be committed to kind of a moral conception of what the whole state, all the people should aspire to and law should be corresponding? Or should it be neutral and stay out of that? It's a great question. So I'm not a liberal who believes there's a crisp divide. My core feeling is what we call philosophically a Republican feeling. That is, I think the state's core justification is in protecting what we think of as a vision of the common good, but the common civic good. That is to say, I think going all the way back to a certain form of thought that we, sorry, going all the way back to a form of thought that we might pin down in ancient Athens, a sort of Aristotelian idea that it's important, Aristotle's well known for having this deep theory, uh, this deep ethical theory. And so many people read Aristotle's ethics right into law. But if you read Aristotle on law, he's actually very modest. And he points out the job of the state is to make it possible for us to live together as equal citizens, right? And this was a profound idea. You know, one of the things that's interesting is we think everything is so different. And some things obviously are deeply different. But the arguments over who counts as a citizen, who are these barbarians at the gate, how long do you have to be a part of our nation before you count, how do we treat your children if we find you at the border, even if you're a visitor, even if you're a guest, even if you came here illegally, what does it mean to show you decency as a polity, how do we make our culture welcoming but robust enough to survive? You can read these debates in Aristotle, and if you change the language, it would be as though you were reading the New York Times. So these debates are not new, and I think there's a lot to be learned in thinking deeply about how you say we can be a republic that has a civic culture, but one that is not intrusive into your personal view of what makes a good life. And when Aristotle says we could live together as equal citizens, he includes a certain group of people. He probably doesn't include other groups of people, but at least he's reflecting on what would that equality mean? What does it entail? It has certain rights, certain responsibilities. It's, it's interesting when this is sort of considered a guiding idea of how to conceive of the relation when you say he's not as vocal or extensive on the law of what the role of the law would be. It doesn't mean that country should be governed in a way, and our country also should not be governed by the court. The Supreme Court, I think, is very strongly has, I mean, you know, Roberts and all the courts have said, we are not governing the country. That is yeah. not our role at all. We're not the legislature. So we're just the control mechanism yeah. for the government, yeah. the government to run the country in a good way. No, you're exactly right. I see um, among your many talents, you still control Aristotle. You still Well, no, I'm trying to get my way through this. What you're saying is... No, you've got it exactly to, right. Do you have this idea? I mean, this country is also founded in this idea that all men are created equal. So it has a really strong commitment to equality. Yeah. 
what I found interesting a in very the last incomplete one to be sure a co- incomplete idea of equality, equality. A, a deeply scarred one right one that's racially scarred scarred by our treatment of women but there is this aspirational quality in our country that I think is deeply Republican that's absolutely right and that then gets articulated in the 14th Amendment, let's say, in the enfranchisement of women voters. So there's certain amendments made in a way, yeah. which I, mean, I actually asked one of your colleagues once, is the First Amendment more important than the 14th because it's number one? He said, <laughs> absolutely not. This is not how the law works. No, you do I not think right. it. But I think there's a common idea. The First Amendment is really important. Oh, that's interesting. The second one is really important, too. The 14th Amendment had its 150th anniversary this summer, yeah. in July, its ratification. Yeah. We did not have huge celebrations in Washington. That's, it is strange, because I think most people think of the, you know, one view of many scholars, and sometimes I think it's an overly romantic view, but one view of many scholars is that the 13th and 14th Amendment are sort of a rebirth of a country, right? So you, you occasionally see books. And to remind me, the 13th and 14th, 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 13th right? Amendment abolished slavery. 14th so, Amendment, so the equal protection So this is 1868, clause. they That's got ratified, and the 14th is equal protection before the law. Exactly, exactly. So all Americans, including black citizens. In particular black citizens, right? So the 14th Amendment goes out of its way to point out freedoms will be guaranteed to you as a citizen, right? In particular, in order to strike down what had been ways of excluding the newly freed blacks. And so the 14th Amendment sort of adds something to the Constitution to say, we also mean black Americans. Yeah, so if you have a romantic view or if you have a view that wants to rehabilitate, or perhaps perhaps I'm being unfair, perhaps if what you want to do is re-energize a new vision of the Constitution, that is to say, give it its own motor, give it its own heartbeat, you know, there are just rafts of books that are called something like the second constitution, the new constitution, the secret constitution, you're right, that all take as the kind of view that the 14th Amendment is a new constitutional, the 13th and 14th Amendment give birth to almost a new constitutional view. And um, would you think it's then, and it may be romantic, I'm kind of in favor of this to sort of say that Hamilton, Madison, you know, uh, Jefferson, they all harbored this in some strange sense, although they may have acted exactly the opposite way, that mm-hmm. there's something in there, or maybe I'm just too much of a... I don't think they did. <laughs> I, I don't have this kind of... You know, look, I mean, we started discussing originalism. I do think in a non-academic way, not speaking about the technical moves within originalism, but I do think one profound reason some people find originalism off-putting is because there's a worry that it has a sort of heliography of what the original public meaning was. And frankly, if you're African-American, there's just nothing particularly compelling about what those group of people thought. But I'm going to push you a little bit, but so yeah. Aristotle is a hero. Aristotle... Did Aristotle harbor these ideas that still have such resonance for us today? Oh, Although Aristotle thought they were natural slaves. No, of course. <laughs> Look, I mean, you make a great point. Let me say two things. I will offer a very tepid defense of Aristotle, which I shouldn't. <laughs> The defense is that Aristotle's passages on slavery are surely his worst passages. In, as you know, the completed work of Aristotle's are voluminous. So for me to say they're his worst passages is non-trivial. I mean, they're really up there with him thinking that women had different numbers of teeth than men. I mean, it's really that bad. And you can almost sense that he thinks this is a terrible set of defenses. An interesting point about that is, you know, one of the current delusions we have 
is that somehow people are not blamable for where they were because their cultures were so different. They couldn't possibly have recognized slavery as an evil. And this is just absurd, right? You can go back we 4, probably years. know a lot of people who recognized it, which were, first of all, the slaves. The slaves they recognized actually had, We actually learned in the last 50 years that subjectivity existed before the Europeans invented <laughs> That's it. That's exactly people right. People had opinions. That's exactly right. People probably, felt, people had dreams, right? And they probably thought very much about their own conditions. That's And actually, right. this is part of what Aristotle as what the Greeks are trying to give us, to say we have the capacity to think about our own condition, about the way we think. So you're giving a tepid defense of Aristotle. But no, I'm, I'm saying he was terrible. I mean, you knew he was terrible. And we shouldn't pretend people didn't know. I mean, this was a debate in Aristotle's time, and it was a well-known debate. And so the idea that, you know, we should excuse this person from a thousand years ago or this person from 200 years ago because they couldn't have possibly understood that, you know, the, the cries of the person in front of them were human is just ridiculous. But your second point is really well taken, and let me take that on more directly. I think one of the dangers we have when we have these debates is to pretend that our intellectual histories are perfect or should be defended at all costs. And indeed, one of the most important things, when I think about my views about republicanism and the way it's committed to, and you put it so well, I think the thing that republicanism offers in a way that's missing from the current landscape is a deep view that you have both rights and duties as a citizen, that we are interwoven in ways that require us to defend each other, to elevate each other, to care about each other. And I don't say it lightly when I say that's missing. I mean, if I may, let me remind you about the debate we had in America about the Affordable Care Act. The debate was in two registers, right? One was the government's not effective at this. The government's going to screw this up. It's going to be terrible. That's a perfectly sensible debate to have. I don't think I agree. Other countries have shown us that there are better ways, but it's a real and thoughtful debate to have. The second was a debate, how dare you make me pay for somebody else's health care? I have rights, and no matter what comes, you cannot impose on me. Notice that kind of view has become the only way in which Americans speak about citizenship. It is about your rights as against the state. And the fact that we are entirely missing a register that used to point out that we have obligations, that we have duties back and forth, that being a citizen is to be interbounded with each other is almost absent from the American landscape. So where do you think this happened, this change? That there was an assumption that sort of as an American you're tied into a system where you actually you have obligations and your expression of pride in being an American is partly that I recognize that I have to do something for the community. Is it just bowling alone kind of an effect that sort of... No, I have, a long, I have a long story about this. Indeed, I have a long story that's a semester long about this. It's one of my philosophy classes. Um, <laughs> we'll have to start your own podcast. No, no, we will <laughs> not. I will make it very short, though. So there's a long strain, and the nice thing about putting it in one minute is it might help those who haven't thought about it understand why we now call certain parties... Democratic versus Republican, right? So Aristotle starts out with the view, you have rights and, well, really he spoke about your duties as a citizen. Aristotle wouldn't have even thought much about your obligation to the state. It was just presumed, right? Um, they just didn't speak in the modern register of rights as against the state, though there's some conversation like that. Um, then this republicanism travels to Rome, let's say, right? And Rome becomes the next empire. And Roman Republicanism becomes much more about how to get Aristotle's view of your duties to um, support the common good, 
how to actualize that. So one version of this, one romanticized version, we might say of Roman republicanism is Machiavelli. We're going to ignore his actual history for a moment. We're not going to find his house or any. But the point is this becomes described as Roman republicanism. And Machiavelli tells us something like this. It is only by setting men up in a way that their interests conflict against each other, predictably to produce the common good, that we will achieve it, right? So what we'll do is we'll empower different people with different interests, people who have different interests with different rights and duties. And the way they will fight will naturally produce the common good. So become really focused on the way your rights can help us aim at the common good. This is the long strain of republicanism for a long time. Travels through Europe, travels through France. You see some of it in Montesquieu. And then it travels to England, right? By the time it gets to England, we're much more focused on the idea that you have individual rights that must be balanced in clash, right? And we'll use these individual rights, again, to produce the common good. And this is the kind of republicanism that lands on the American shores, right? So when you read the Federalist Papers, when you read Madison, it's Madison and Hamilton, they're all saying, even, you know, men are not angels. The important thing to do is to make sure that interest against interest, rights against rights, this is what will happen. And then they write, but of course, none of this can exist without deep civic virtue, this is the background. We assume this is true, and people must always understand that their rights are embedded in producing a common good. But they're focused on rights, not surprisingly, right? They're, as the musical has taught us so well, they're interested in their rights as against the, the English king, their rights to be represented, their rights to pursue their own common good. And virtue and civic good are just assumed as background conditions. This is what we lost. This is what becomes modern republicanism right and thus eventually a way of describing the republican party a party that is obsessed about your rights as against the state but that is all and has some conversation about sort of moral ecology and virtue but has started to you know i shouldn't say started but has lost the conversation about the fact that these rights come embedded in duties. So it's the modern Republican Party that can say the only thing that matters is being taxed less. The only thing that matters is not paying for other people's health care. So you're saying, <laughs> let me slow this down. This, I mean, yeah. I, I'd love to hear the whole semester long version. <laughs> but so from Madison Hamilton, from Federalist Papers, so they have my, my favorite one is number 55. It's Publius writing, and he say, it says, the pluralism of America ensures that there's enough people with different viewpoints that ultimately there will be a preponderance of good people right. over bad people. That's right. Because otherwise we'll tear each other apart and our self-interest will just dominate. So there's strife, as you said, among these different people asserting the individual rights, what Machiavelli said. But they're saying, but there's so many different people in America, we have to just assume that they're more good than bad people. Yes. So there's a kind of assumption or presumption that Americans on the whole as if statistically averaged out, would be more good than bad people. And so not just more good than bad, but that they'll be appropriately able to self-limit yes. their self-interest right. as against the And public. so what happens in, in 200 years? So it doesn't go from there right to you know, Newt Gingrich and then to you know, yeah. uh, President Trump. It sort of, how does the Republican Party, or how does our self-understanding shift? And you did mention two things, that there's still a sense of kind of a moral fabric of the of the culture or yeah. something like that so this but the sense of civic duty is yeah. lost or changes it's a good question you know i think a lot of different things happened somehow i think the massiveness of the country 
probably the speed of modern life made it much easier for people to focus not just on their small city or their small hamlet but to reinterpret their rights as only focused on their ability to do well for themselves right people maybe this is an overly anti-romantic view you mentioned bowling alone but it becomes easier and easier for people to be interested in whether or not their tax dollars are producing benefits for them it becomes easier and easier for people to worry not just about education generally which was an american obsession at least in the modern period but about their school district and then later on their school it becomes you know look man is always you know there's nothing new about being selfish but it becomes easier and easier to speak in terms of your right to be let alone without worrying about what that does to the modern ecology your listeners may be familiar with an american classic it's an american classic sociology called exit voice and loyalty and the idea there is that you know we really have three choices we can be loyal to an institution right we can voice our displeasure with it we can try to change it or we can exit right and exit just means i'm out i'll take my benefits to myself a pta is a great example of exit voice and loyalty but so too is a school generally right how do you exit the school system well you just decide to send all your kids to private school or to homeschool or to homeschool and sometimes there are good reasons to do that maybe there's a very particular kind of education you want maybe you're religious and that's not offered i'm sympathetic to those but it comes with a big danger now that you're not tied in together you have every incentive to cut taxes to the bone leaving those who cannot exit with a worse and worse and worse education, right? How do you exit a community? You move behind a gate, right? Once you have a gated community, the way you interact with your city becomes ever decreased, right? Ever more arm's length. The fact that you should vote for a tax increase for the good of everybody in your polis is easier and easier to ignore. And I think that's what we've seen in, erode. In the last 18 years, it's strange that America after 9-11 that it went in several directions, and it could have gone in the other direction. It could have said, this is actually the moment where we rally and we actually want to start thinking of a community that's tied together, for better or for worse, but tied together. There's, let's say, a perceived threat, whether that's correctly identified or not, but there's a threat. There's something that is unprecedented or was, hadn't happened in hundreds, over 200 years. So that the country didn't come together and think, we now need to recommit to communities local etc and collective but rather actually became it seems more driven apart into kind of selfishness you know you asked how i think these things eroded and i think you've chosen a great example and you've chosen an example that shows how these things become vicious cycles right so the more you devolve from a view of the common good the more you think of all politics as just rent seeking the only important thing is tactical strikes against one group versus another in order to gain benefits for your group, the harder it gets to reverse that, right? So this moment of patriotism around 9-11 gets turned very quickly into cheap patriotism that's about, you know, George W. Bush says, go shopping. We quickly start asking, should we go to war? And then the only question is, if you're not a, for the war, then you're not a patriot. If you're against the war, then you're... Instead of thinking deeply about what this meant generally, it becomes cheapened. This is also reinforced by a couple other things that had happened before. So I think it really, really matters that our military is entirely volunteer, right? It means that the way we can vote to go to war 
is very, very different. That's, again, about the way in which we're not tied together, right? So so the, the, the end of the draft of a collective draft means that people are not actively putting in their own sons or daughters into this into this common project and enterprise, which would raise the stakes so tremendously to exactly your children right. or brothers or relatives or cousins, which for many people are, but it's just distributed unevenly. So yeah, you're saying exactly right. once you remove that, people can exercise what they perceive as their own freedoms. But what it is actually is a kind of truncated freedom. It's a cheapened freedom. It's much cheaper to talk about whether or not you'll go to war. Look, I was of an age where I was not going to go to war. You know, I was too young for the first Gulf War, too old for the second. I don't regret this. I'm very grateful to those who would, you know, fight on our behalf. I'm deeply grateful to our service members. But it makes it easier for me to shoot off my mouth, doesn't it? Right? If you know that your child will be on the line, it will change the sobriety with which you reason. It's not a cure-all. There are, of course, countries where everybody's in the military that remain militaristic. We know many of them. But those countries reason about war differently. And what I mean by that, of course, is a true draft, right? Not a draft. You know, one of the saddest moments we've had in a very sad two years, in a very, to my mind, disgusting two years, is a president who can, you know, deride and shoot off his mouth about those who served when in fact he could avoid service quite cheaply by writing about mythical bone spurs it's different if the draft isn't the kind of thing that the rich can easily get their kids out of if it were really the case that rich or poor you had to go to war look i think england has many problems but one of the things the english are very proud of in their most elite institutions are the name you know, you can go to Oxford, whereas in my postgraduate, and every college says, these are the names of the young men of this college that died in the Great War. And opposite that, it'll say, these are the names of the young men of this college that died in World War II. The fact that the children of the most privileged will also have to go to war changes the way you reason. Why do you think this is possible in the last two years, as you said, that something has... So we have this trend that you identify kind of from sort of the Greek idea of republicanism mm -hmm. all the way to the founding fathers and for the last 200 years and after 9-11 there's a kind of erosion of the sense that we're in this together that yeah. people are pitted against one another because this idea of strife and competitiveness is misinterpreted I think from sort of a competitiveness in economic ways or you're competing as an athlete or as a businessman no, you're not competing as a citizen against yeah. other citizens and there's a kind of zero-sum game. If you get something, someone else is going to lose something. Yeah. So, so this rhetoric has gotten worse. Is there a way to get out of it? You know, th it's a wonderful question. And it ties into the question with which you started about how you speak to your students about, you know, expertise and how you think. It's a broad question. Of course, I only have the beginnings of an answer. But here are my thoughts. It seems true to me that for a long time, a group of very successful elites in this country have indeed been very stingy about sharing the benefits of the economy. I think you and I are lucky enough to be, you know, very much a part of this, or at least on the border, not the ultra-rich, but very much a part of those who've benefited. But the truth is, as we well know, the benefits of two generations of wealth have gone to an ever smaller percentage of people. And I think what this means is... Whatever else is true, and I don't forgive the tolerance of Trump's racism, I don't forgive the tolerance of his misogyny, I don't forgive the tolerance of his vulgarity, but one thing that is true is that a group of people 
have grown increasingly aware that the elites have talked a big game but not shared, right? You know, one of the things I've gotten the chance to do when I was a little bit younger was actually campaign, right? So getting a chance to campaign meant knocking on doors. And I remember stories of people saying, you know, my husband used to work and we used to be able to afford this house. And then I started working part-time in order to afford this house. And now and now we both work and we can still barely keep up. And the deep frustration that lots of people have when they say, and we keep asking why, and the answers we get back are gibberish, right? The answers they get back are something like, it's globalization, it's complicated, you wouldn't understand, right? Or... It's a big financial dealing. Don't worry. I'm cutting this tranche to do this. I'm moving this risk off to Germany. And then this... And they know people are just speaking gibberish at them. But what they do understand is that the guy who keeps speaking gibberish at them has a bigger and bigger house, a nicer and nicer car, and they don't. And so I think what that did was inculcate a deep cynicism that these people are making it up. They're not smarter than we are. They're not more thoughtful they're not more civic minded they're just saying a bunch of fancy words in order to keep the goods to themselves right i had one of your colleagues at the berkeley school of law ian haney lopez who's written a book on dog whistle politics Mm -hmm. and he said the way to have done this is the family you just talked about who had to work more and more to keep the same house to say but you're going to keep on voting with some white identified group and we're going to split you off from other people like you who don't have your same racial identity. He said to divide people in this way to say to keep on voting with white interest which is elite interest because you could belong to this. Although he says for 50 years it's been shown they don't benefit from this but that was a way to divide the population and to vote against their own interests because they're voting across along racial lines and not economic lines. Look, one of the scholars you and I both admire, Dubois, made this point, right? That one of the things that really mattered, when Dubois turned his attention not just to race, but to race, class, and labor, Dubois spoke deeply about how one of the deep tragedies is that, and I believe this very much still to this day, alliances that are there for the making are constantly undermined purposefully by people who say, look, whatever else is true, you're better than that Negro, right? And so when we talk about the way in which these common virtues have eroded, another conversation that's unquestionably the case is the role of race. America is so obsessed with our original sin, and obsessed in all the wrong ways, right? America is obsessed with our original sin in replicating it, not erasing it, so that... And replicating the kind of division and animosity toward other racial groups? Yeah, we Americans are obsessed in a way you will find in almost no other country with the idea of the undeserving poor, right? And the undeserving poor tends to be deeply racialized. I don't say it's the only image. I mean, obviously there are people who have an image of an undeserving poor white person. But in America, it's in part fueled by the idea that those people over there are bad, vicious, lazy, and leeches. And we shouldn't have any program that gives to the undeserving poor, right? As a result, programs that would obviously help lift up huge numbers of people and give them opportunity are sunk by the very people they would help. So, for example, one tragic study shows that if you tell people 
of a bunch of government programs that will help them in their position, in particular poor white people. They are hugely in favor of it. If you then point out to those same people that this program will help poor black people, they suddenly dislike the same program. Despite the fact that that program will help them, they dislike the program. So part of the ways in which we have lost our sense of fighting for the common good has always been on these racial lines. There's just no question about it. And that's... And what do you think has changed in the last two years with President Trump moving from dog whistle politics as sort of Professor Lopez explained, he said yeah. it's no longer dog whistle no. inaudible to most people. It's entirely audible to yeah. all people. So what shifts now? What do you think is going to happen? Is the country going to realize actually what you just said, that a lot of this is works along racial lines that actually it's not an economic question i think there's been this kind of epiphany in the liberal media and the times and saying oh my god people didn't vote for donald trump because he got them jobs which sounded a bit sort of an obvious point to me if you listen to his campaigns and i listened to a lot of rallies and i didn't go to any of them listened on youtube yeah you know what he's saying it's, yeah. it wasn't really an economic policy yeah. or program he was rolling out so what do you think is going to happen once this is this is becoming easier to see, if anything. Yes. Look, I think, well, we say it's easier to see. You know, one thing I said is that America is obsessed with race in all the wrong ways. And partly what I meant by that is Americans are also obsessed with ignoring racism. I mean, it's a deep, it, it is amazing how you can play the most obviously racist things Donald Trump says. And some huge group of people are committed to not seeing it. They will say, you liberals are oversensitive, you make race out of everything, you... So I'm not sure. I think about this question a lot because one of the things I'm turning my attention to when you write on civic bonds and equality, I'm really interested in the question of healing and repudiation, right? What does it mean for us, you know, when you ask what's going to happen next, what does it mean for us to think deeply about how we heal, both on a sort of global level, this kind of scarring, and then also on a retail level? How will the daughter who said to her dad, Dad, I told you about my sexual assault and you voted for Trump anyway. How are they going to restitch those bonds together? The friendships, and I've had friendships that have been deeply bruised or broken by, by this election. Uh, you know, will we be able to fix those or not? When you ask me what do I think is going to happen, I'll tell you what my deep worry is. My deep worry is we're going to do what Americans are so good at doing and pretend we're just going to lie to ourselves, right? So, you know, one of the obvious points, every American thinks Martin Luther King is a hero. He's one of the most widely admired Americans. He's one of the most widely admired people in history across the world. To the extent people know him, they admire him. And in fact, worse than that, every American has always thought Martin Luther King is a hero. If you ask people, they always admired King. If you ask people, it seems like everybody was marching in the streets for the civil rights era. Nobody can remember when. This is all, of course, entirely false, right? When King was alive, he was seen as a rabble-rouser. He was seen as a troublemaker. He was seen as a foreign instigator, a communist, a race-baiter. All the things we say about people who are fighting for civil rights now were said about King. And indeed, when King was alive, a majority of Americans thought poorly of him. The problem is we didn't grapple with those issues. We didn't fix them. We didn't make them any better. We just chose to forget, right? We wait 15, 20 years. We voted for a national holiday. And then we tell ourselves, you see, we always understood King. We always admired him. 
and I want to say, gosh, well, who were those people in the pictures spitting at him? Who were those people beating him? Who were those people sicking dogs on those children? Did they, none of them existed? My worry is that, you know, 20 years from now, nobody will remember voting for Trump. And we won't wrestle with the core racisms. We won't wrestle with the way in which we're willing to dismiss women. We won't wrestle with the vulgarity. We'll just kind of try to pretend it never happened. And these things will continue. I think the difficulty you're pointing out is that I would think it's a matter of storytelling, of creating a cultural memory, which was done largely in this country through the media very powerfully. So how come it was possible to construct a narrative of everybody was in favor of Dr. King when this is simply not true, that people could kind of hide behind that story. But the other story is a more troubling one, and so how do you tell a troubling story in a powerful way? Because the other one is so simple that we all love Dr. King, we're on the side, I mean, so that is comforting. The other one is troubling. How do you reconcile an identity with something that is not as palatable that maybe you didn't want to know about your parents, your grandparents, etc. And I think what's what the country is going through right now, the, the Kavanaugh confirmation, is that the country is generationally really challenged, that there's a generation of people under 30 saying, seriously, you're going to keep on doing this? And people over 50 or 60 are saying, yes, absolutely. This I, is, we're going to keep on telling ourselves, sorry, this sexual abuse doesn't really exist. It's not really rampant, boys, will, et cetera, all sorts of dismissals of a certain type of story. But to construct a story that's both correct and affirmative. Because I think otherwise it always sounds like what you said. You're bringing up race too much. You're obsessing. You're coming up with all these troubling stories. That's not American. I think you're exactly right. I think you've put it very well. Part of what's happening today is I think a huge group of people who had worked hard to get to where we were maybe rested for a moment. And everybody took that as detente, right? And a huge group of people said, no, no, no. I'm not going to I'm not going to live with a detente that says just so long as my racism is quiet and institutionalized that's fine. So long as I don't say the n-word, it's totally fine if we still systematically keep you out of positions of power. And a bunch of black people said, "Nope, that won't work for me." A bunch of women said, "You know, this deal that just because if we don't call you honey and live in madmen anymore, so long as we keep it much more subtle, make jokes at your expense, pinch your butt once and not 10 times." gosh, that's just flirting the workplace. And they said, no, no, that does not work. So I think there's just a group, as you said, a group of people who have said, no, no, right? We demand yet still more progress. And there's the backlash to that, which is part of what we're seeing in Trump. People who want to think that these systemic problems that actually materially affect your well-being are somehow charming and they're part of a Rockwell painting. And gosh, isn't he really more like your cute uncle that tells a slightly off-color joke? No, he's more like your boss who undermines your career. Well, and he's also more like the uncle who finally tells you how it really is. Yeah. Because actually, in a weird way, he exploits this other dimension that there's an obsession with race and a kind of reluctance to talk about it. So at least he'll talk about race. Yeah. So at least he can tell you what it is, and then he can point out things. So he you know, got the dog whistle into a register we can all understand which had been there all along. So there's a kind of relief, I think, people feel that he takes this role. And in some way, he also relishes, obviously, in the blowback he experiences. So people say, well, so he carries this for us now. I think that's right. Look, my wife makes a great point about this. She looks around and she says, the way she describes it, I think, is more elegant than I can. 
you think about everybody out there, in particular older white people, who feel like, gosh, I used to be able to make this joke, and now when I make this joke, somehow I'm out of step, or I have to go to HR training, or maybe it's just falls flat at the dinner table. Well, my free speech is abridged. And thus my free speech is abridged. <laughs> I need or, the ACLU to defend me. Exactly. Or thus there's a... Yeah, exactly. Right. Or, you know, I used to be able to do this, and now when I do it, everyone jumps down my throat. And so, you know, there's a way in which he's liberating for them in that sense, right? Maybe I don't want to be that vulgar, but gosh. And there's a way in which when he makes these obvious vulgar moves, even those who should know better feel like, you know, hey, you know, when I make that joke, I didn't mean it either. And I think that's a part of it. So that's the clash between the detente and those who feel as though, you know, I'm under attack. And thus, and never mind that they're actually sitting in, you know, the CEO's seat. And But that, that's interesting what you're saying, this kind of sense of, I'm the victim here because of this politically correct culture, suppressing my voice. This a very American idea that I have the right to say anything I want. My That's individuality right. is being compromised here for the sake of some collective good. It goes back to what you said earlier, sort of, well, if I can't say what I want, what kind of country is this for me? No, that's right. And Americans are hyper-individualistic in a way that, I mean, when you make America, as you well know, when you make American-type individualist arguments in other countries, people just look at you odd, right? It seems like a hyper-arrogance. The idea that, you know, the heavens may fall, but I get to do what I want. And it's just, you know, in other places, this is just bizarre. Of you course, know. I think it's the most sort of powerful and productive thing of America because it's if true. you mobilize that and people can say we can build a way in which we can be together without having to rely on our rootedness or our original identity we can reinvent ourselves it's a country of self-invention it's exactly it's right. also this the flip side of self-invention is always con men it's like Herman Melville's Pierre or people like that it's that's always right. the imposter that's right it's sort of you made yourself up you arrived here and you invented your backstory that's right you know, but I mean the problem with this self-invention is you know, one thing is to not be held in check by your roots. The other thing is to forget that rootedness matters at all, right? So, you know, the people who were the objects of discrimination two generations ago turn a blind eye to discrimination a gener two Hannah generations Hannah Arendt says later. this somewhere. It's rather depressing. So the political theorist writes, there has not been a group of oppressed people in history who even one minute after reaching liberation has remembered their oppression and had solidarity with those who It's amazing. Oppressed. That yeah. They move into, it's, you know, when the Irish become white, when the Italians become white, when people sort of assume this state of power, they can't remember. So this, I think, is a big challenge. It's true. It's a story that's one it, of solidarity. It's true. This is one of the reasons, you know, despite my deep feeling for what African-Americans have to do. I have no romantic view that being African-American makes you somehow a better type of person because the danger is precisely that the moment you achieve success, you are utterly blinded to that which came before and you're indeed ever hungrier to be to be oppressive. So, look, I mean, I, I do worry about this. Look, the reinventing is, I agree with you, it's one of the amazing things about Americans. Americans are the kind of people who can land in Paris and say, beautiful. This doesn't work for me. Let's build a McDonald's, right? And this is why McDonald's is McDonald's. It's a profound way of, you know, the world is yours to change. And that is the greatness of America. The downside of it is this kind of, you know. Well, the blindness to positionality or to people saying, I've invented myself. I 
took all the privilege along, which accrues to me sort of without my doing, and I'm going to pretend it's all equal. Everybody can invent That's themselves right. in the same way. So I can walk into That's the law right. school and and pretend I'm a law professor, and people will mostly believe it. That's right. And look, you know, when Barack Obama pointed out the very simple thing, you know, he said this phrase, you didn't do that. And, you know, conservatives just raked him over the coals. He was saying the world's simplest thing. Look, if you're going to be an economic giant in today's world, you deserve a ton of credit for doing that. If you're going to be Jeff Bezos and invent Amazon, that's a remarkable accomplishment. I assume it's a remarkable accomplishment. I know I couldn't do it, right? But it's true that Amazon only works because a nation invested literally generations of people in an interstate highway system. And it is obviously the case that Jeff Bezos didn't do that. Obama's merely pointing out that it takes a social background to make it the case that you can be a giant was viewed precisely in your way, your point. It violated the American sense that you really made yourself entirely from scratch. Do you think your law students, when they get out of Cardozo after three years, they retain the sense that they are supposed to use the law in a way that doesn't just benefit the individual client at all points, but actually benefits the greater good? I hope so. I Look, I think one of the things that, even in a country that cares so much about individual rights, one of the things that I am proud of about lawyers, and lawyers take on a lot of water, lawyers take on a lot of jokes, is that lawyers are meant to understand that they're ultimately officers of the court, right? And that's not a trivial thing. You know, you can be looking at a document that really hurts your case. I've seen good lawyers do this. This document will really hurt your case, but it has been, it's not privileged, the other side is called for it in discovery, and you turn it over, right? because you are an officer of the court and that is your job. You, your role is to advocate as voraciously as you can for your client, but you're not there to help them, so to speak, violate. I actually like this idea of a lawyer sitting there thinking, this has been part of discovery, do I hand this I've document seen, over? And you say, I've, you better hand it over because I, you will otherwise be disbarred. The thing is, <laughs> most lawyers, I mean, look, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be Pollyannish. There are lots of bad lawyers, there are lots of crooked lawyers, there are lots of lawyers who play fast and loose and... The plurality of America. They are many different people. That's right. right. We contain multitudes, as the line <laughs> yes. goes. But the funny thing is that most lawyers don't only do this. Most lawyers do it without even thinking about it, right? They just understand that you're to fight as much as you can within certain rules. But, And I think, for example, when you look at the financial crisis, some of which was obviously abetted by lawyers. Again, I'd not try to be Pollyannish. But you see a difference between, for example, lawyers and bankers, right? I mean, I don't mean to run down bankers. I have lots of friends who are bankers. But... You know, a lot of the bankers I know are just trained with the mentality that your job is to push your client's interest. And there's no further question, you know, with the bare minimum of something that's flatly illegal. There's no further question that there is an ethics of being a banker. But lawyers do have that. Lawyers do have this basic idea that there's an ethics I of being a lawyer. absolutely am convinced that bankers would completely contradict you. I hope so. No, I actually hope so. maximizing my profit opportunities means to maximize the common goods interest in my product, oh, I see what you mean. So I think they would have oh, a story to tell yes, you sure. that actually, of course, what I'm doing is advancing this interest while recognizing that having everybody be able to purchase things, for example, that's the example, that's good for me. So I think they will give you a 
counter narrative yeah. that business schools are yes. more ethical yes. than legal law schools. So we know this narrative that if you know, the, look, it's a great point, but this narrative plays exactly into what we're saying. The idea yes. that all you have to care about are your rights, and the common right. good will produce exactly. itself. And I think lawyers ought not be suckered right. into that belief. There's one last thing. I, I wanted to reference a question you asked earlier when you asked, how do we get past this idea that telling narratives that are critical is somehow un-American? And I think that is one of the great questions we face. I think one of the great sadnesses, and you've written about this and talked about this when we talk about you know, the balance between being gatekeepers of real information but respecting free speech... I think about this when I think of even middle school education, right? The fact that we erupt in such violence when a middle school says, no, we should teach slavery as well, or we should teach the way the civil rights era actually worked. We should teach, for example, that part of America's economic success was entirely built on free labor and the effects that's had. We should teach what racism has looked like throughout our history. And people say, that's so negative, this is just progressive, you're replacing Shakespeare with African-American radicalism. I think part of what's going on there is, you know, look, should there be space for Shakespeare and modern thinking about race relations? Obviously. But the reaction that's so violent is a discomfort with facing. We saw this recently with the debate surrounding Columbus Day, where people point out just the very obvious fact that Columbus is a deeply awful person. Columbus is responsible for a genocide of a people. He, Columbus was so morally problematic that he sent back to Spain and essentially tried for being harsher than even the colonial Spanish would have allowed in trying to just extract wealth from a new world. And when you bring this up, somehow you're a modern radical who wants to disrespect our, you know, I, I'm sure Trump would say, I'm trying to take away our culture. One of my favorite historical moments is a beautiful conversation I recommend to everybody. It's Douglas's What is the Fourth of July to a Slave. Oh yeah, Frederick Douglass, I think it's 1854 in Rochester. Uh, there you he have gives it. gives a speech, what does the Fourth of July mean, yeah. to, an, mean, to, an American, exactly. mean to an American Negro? Mean to. So he talks about what does the freedom, exactly. what does emancipation and freedom mean to an American, right? It's an amazing speech. Right? It's a beautiful speech, forgive the funk. That is, that is a kind of inspiring note to end on because he actually says, actually, Douglas is a really interesting figure. I, cons I kind of count him as one of the founding fathers, chronologically not quite correct, but I think he, in this speech he says, what does it mean to me to be told Americans are free when this freedom isn't given to me? And then he says in a very American way, I'm going to speak nonetheless without any court, any judge, any of you giving me the right to speak. He sort of, I think he's the it's quintessential American I voice couldn't to agree say, more. I'm not going to wait for anyone to authorize me. I couldn't agree more. When you think about Douglas in this way, one of the reasons I find him so intellectually not just fascinating, but enriching and inspiring, you know, Douglas is somebody who people forget he's also alive in the moment when there's a movement to ship the slaves back to Africa. This is where the country of Liberia comes from, right? People forget Liberia means freedom. Monroeville, the capital, is named after the American president. And they asked Douglas, what do you think? Maybe the way to end race relations, the problems with race relations and slavery is just to let these Africans go home. And he says, no, this country's been built on our blood, our sweat, tears, and yes, our blood as much as anybody. We mean to make our life here, right? We will fight for our freedom here in this, our land. So there's this profound commitment to both recognizing what is wrong 
and how slavery is this deep evil is against him, but not abandoning the American project. And in this speech, what is the 4th of July to a Negro, you're, as you point out, he speaks movingly about the false promise that America holds out in pretending that there's freedom to African Americans. But he ends by saying, I will not despair for this country. He ends on this very hopeful note. I think this speech is sort of a performative speech act because he actually, by which I mean he changes the condition of speech in America and says, I'm going to criticize this promise. I'm going to say it's false. It's not been realized. It's empty. And nonetheless, I'm going to act on it. That's exactly right. So he transforms the conditions of speech rather than saying, I'm going to complain. I don't have this right. I'm going to say, I'm just going to do it and therefore change something. This is during Dred Scott, when Americans exactly. are deprived by the Supreme Court, and so it takes until 1868 till they even get the right to vote. But that speech can transform the conditions under which it is given. I think that is really, that is powerfully American also. It's exactly right. And I think if we want to point to the best of us, if we want to point to what's grand in that speech, it's the idea that you can call out a hypocrisy, criticize it, commit yourself to its not being elided without giving up on the project. Right. That is, when we speak of what's best in the country, it is not the cheap reaction that those who protest the country are less American. It's the recognition that a strong country is made by those who will both criticize endlessly while being committed to the project. So I think we'll need to look for the Frederick Douglasses of today, of which there are some. Actually, I think there are voices. There are the Colin Kaepernick's and people like that it's who true. I think will be remembered I think more hopefully than the people who will deny having voted for Trump in 20 years <laughs> my worry is that everybody will remember that they were Kaepernick supporters in 20 years and will have lost the story again but but this is the project to which we're committed all right I want to thank you Professor Yanka for being on the podcast and um, I'll have you back to talk more about Aristotle <laughs> and how they inform our thinking of the Republic it's fascinating and thanks so much for joining it's me really today. my pleasure this was a lot of fun thank you for having me thank you